two were threats to the character of our community. We decided or some time ago to rethink the Christian story and after we did that, 40% of our community left. And then we have now. Now when we are deciding the kind of community that we will become. It was suggested on Facebook that we do uh, communion today, which is a really good idea. Communion is the most potent symbol of unity that our tradition has, but based on conversations that I've had this week, based on things that I've read, I think that potent symbol of unity would be a little bit premature. I hope to do it, but we've got to do some deciding first. We've got to decide what kind of community we will become, and we've got to decide whether we will remain or not. This moment is a threat to our community, to be sure, but it could also be an opportunity. I have said several times that change is usually precipitated by pain, and the thing that we're going through right now, it's pretty painful. Some may leave the community simply because it hurts so badly. But the pain can also be an invitation to breakthrough. We've seen some things these last couple weeks, uh, things we can't unsee. We've heard some things this week that we cannot unhear. The thing is, they were always there. They were just covered up with politeness. And so, yes, this conflict could be an existential threat, but it could also be an invitation to a great leap forward. Either way, I doubt that things are going to go back to the way that they were. So today, I'm going to ask you to remain, to remain part of the community. But before I do that, before I ask you that, I want to provide some context Now, it's been a volatile two weeks for our nation, a volatile two weeks for our community, and because of that volatility, I want to rehearse something that really shouldn't need rehearsing, but let's do it anyway. There's no way to be a faithful Christian and not carry a moral responsibility for the well-being of women and of Mexicans and of Muslims and of black lives and of LGBT people. A world in which any person or any group doesn't have access or doesn't have opportunity that any other group or any other person has is a world in which our work as Christians is not done. We don't, as Christians, get to turn a blind eye to other people's pain. We don't get to, as Christians, turn a blind eye to other people's sufferings. Now again, that shouldn't need to be said, but it's been a volatile week. Things that our nation fought about during this election were very spiritual. Jesus and the law and the prophets and the wisdom literature are all very insistent that we treat foreigners well. Now we can debate the best way to do that. We can debate how we go about that. We can debate how we manage our resources as we do that. But that we do that, it's not open for debate for Christians. Jesus and the law and the prophets have been unwavering in their insistence that we Christians stand with whomever is disenfranchised. 
We Christians stand with the weak. We stand with the poor. We stand with the outcast. We stand with those who do not have access. That's us. And again, should it need to be said, but it's been a week. So I'm going to ask you to remain, but before I do, some context. I had an anthropology class along the way somewhere, and I remember a professor remarking how strong our instinct is for people to want to make love and to pray in their mother tongue. In other words, our spirituality and our sexuality are such deep, deep parts of us that being that deep, we feel vulnerable at those points of depth. And that vulnerability seeks protection, and that vulnerability seeks security. People often quote Martin Luther King about Sunday mornings being the most racially segregated time of the week, which is still pretty true, and it's directly due to this dynamic. We want to be with people like us in our most intimate places. Too much diversity in our spirituality and too much diversity in our sexuality feels dangerous, whereas sameness feels safe. Consequently, churches tend to be homogeneous. White folks tend to go to church with one another. Black folks tend to go to church with one another. Gay accepting people and gay rejecting people, traditional gender role people, non-traditional gender role people, all tend to go to church with one another, all tend to marry one another. Our sexuality and our spirituality are deeply vulnerable because they're so deep And because they are, we look for safety in those places. And we look for safety in sameness. Safety in our sexuality, safety in our spirituality. But something different happened when NRCC was forming, and that is that we didn't really set out to become a normal church. We really set out to answer this fundamental question, can we even be Christian? we set out to answer the question, can we even be a church? Because most of us had been hurt so much by the Christian tradition, we were asking a core fundamental question. And that origin had the unintended consequence of making us a little more diverse than many churches. Now, from a racial perspective, we're still pretty heavily weighted in favor of white middle-class folks. But in other ways, we are more diverse than really feels safe With our views of religion, we're more diverse than feels safe. With our politics, we're more diverse than feels safe. With our social issues, the way that we think about them, we're more diverse than feels safe. And that happened because we became the community questioning these most fundamental assumptions about religion. Can we even be religious? We weren't thinking about politics and we weren't thinking about race or Muslims or Mexicans or gender or including or excluding LGBT people. Our question was more basic. What is the nature of religion? What is the nature of being Christian? And that meant that people who shouldn't be going to church together ended up going to church together. They had the same question coming from very diverse backgrounds. Can we be Christian? And so consequently, a bunch of Pentecostals ended up going to church with a bunch of evangelicals. And if you don't know much about religion in America, you ought to know this. Pentecostals and evangelicals don't like each other. Mainline liberals were going to church with recovering fundamentalists. 
Some were theologically rebellious and some were theologically traditional. Some were politically left, some were politically right. Most were straight, a few were gay, most were white, a few were people of color. And along the way, we stumbled on this idea. Whatever church is, whatever Christianity is, at the bedrock center of it is the idea of authentic community, honest community, straightforward community, honest with who I am community, honest with where I am on the journey community, honest with the thoughts that I think community, not having to conform in order to belong community. That kind of became who we were. So quite accidentally, we became a little bit heterogeneous. We didn't try to, it just happened. Again, not very racially heterogeneous, but in other ways quite so. And the question before us as a community after this election is, will we retreat to the safety of homogeneity or will we forge forward and go even more deeply than we have gone? Because I don't think the status quo is any longer an option for us. Now, to survive this odd way in which we have done church, we've developed some pretty good tools that really could help us move forward and move more deeply. It's been a slow learning process, often painful, but we've learned some. We didn't learn it because we were particularly noble, but because we were stuck with each other. Because once you believe that authentic community is essential for healthy religion, for healthy Christianity, and you find people coming together that are different, we had to develop these tools we were stuck between a rock and a hard place. The rock was the mandate for authentic community. The hard place is our brain's natural wiring for the safety of sameness. I've had a front row seat for the whole thing and it's been a sight. There's an arch traditionalist learning to love gay people. That's not supposed to happen because every traditional Christian knows that gay people are an abomination to God and every gay person knows that they aren't welcome in church. And we've learned to do some of it. We've made progress. Incomplete progress, unfinished progress, but progress. We've learned some tools. We haven't fully mastered them, but we've learned some tools. And now we face either a threat or an opportunity. Now we're being invited to leave or to take up those tools and to do more with them and to be better with them and to go deeper with them. We're being invited to develop a more muscular version of Christian love. It's an invitation or it's a threat. We might devolve into a sameness kind of church. We might quietly chase away everybody who doesn't think and believe the same way. But we might do better. We do have these tools. We do have these experiences. We've done a lot of work in understanding ourselves so that we can understand the other, so that we can join with the other, so that we can stand in solidarity with one another, so that we can stand in solidarity with the world around us. We've done a lot of the preparatory work. We could perhaps do better. We've experienced a lot of things, and we know that the thing is hardly ever the thing, but the thing under the thing is usually the thing. We know that. We know how to be suspicious of our hard and fast truths because we know about our upper and our lower brains. We know how easily our instincts betray us. We've recently learned about our elephants and our riders, again, helping us be suspicious of the latched onto, immovable way that we hold on to our one and true truths. 
we've learned a little bit about humility and about listening and about seeing from another person's perspectives. We've learned how to create safe spaces to talk about things that church folks don't really talk about. So we're set up. We're set up to do better, to go deeper and go further. Seems like if anybody could do heterogeneous church, if anyone could do better than the echo chamber version of church, the silo chamber uh, kind of church, the sameness kind of church, if anyone could do that, it seems like we could. But some of the things that have happened this week, some of the things that have been said this week will not take us there. So today, I want to ask you to remain part of our community. If you are a Trump voting Republican, I hope you will stay. If you are a flaming liberal Democrat, I hope you will stay. If you are gay or if you are uncomfortable with gay people, I hope you will stay. If you are white or if you are black or if you are brown, I hope you will stay. And I hope that you'll remain and be your most authentic self with people who are very different from you. This is kind of our gig as Christians. In the book of John, Jesus said it this way, when the world looks at you, this is how will they know, this is how they will know that you're my followers when they see the way that you love one another. And that's what I'm asking today. I'm asking you to stay and figure out this love one another thing. And do it in an environment where we are not all the same. Now, St. Francis gave us some practical help for times like this in his famous prayer. It's the line that we looked at in the last lesson, seek first to understand and then be understood. Now, those words have become kind of ceremonial, so sometimes we don't see them for what they are. They're not just pretty words about nice people. I think they talk to us about how to love one another. They talk to us about how to be heard and the way to be heard is to hear. They talk about how to be understood because the way to be understood is to understand. That's a pretty fundamental foundational part of learning to love one another. The understanding of one another. The hearing of one another. Walking in one another's shoes and feeling one another's feelings. We all want to have someone on the other side feel what we feel but it's important that we feel what one another feel. Seeking first to understand is really not so much about facts. It's about this powerful thing that we humans can do called empathy. Being able to put ourselves into another person's experience. Being able to put ourselves into another person's world. To put ourselves into another person's emotional state and feel what they feel. And we have some experience getting to that place. It's hard, but we've learned to do it. Husbands and wives have learned to do it. Co-workers and friends have learned to do it. Children and parents have learned to do it. We've learned to understand the feelings of the other. And I think we can go further and deeper and do more. I think we can do it with race. I think we can do it with sexuality. I think we can do it with gender. So when I ask you to stay... I'm asking you to stay and figure out how to be Christian and how to love one another across the gulfs that divide us and to understand the other and in the understanding to empathize 
and in the empathizing to stand in solidarity with the other and in standing solidarity with to be able to fight with the other for what is right and good and noble. And I don't think some of the things that we've done this week will get us there. Now, let me talk just a little bit about Facebook. One of the things that Facebook does do is expose us to stuff that we didn't know. It gives us opportunity to see things we had not seen, and that's good. One of the other things that Facebook does, it allows us to do that very imperfectly. So we've had this long-standing practice of discouraging posts or deleting them when they showed up that kind of took on the tone of some of our posts this week. But I asked our administrators not to do that this week. I asked them to just let it rip because I wanted us to see what's really there so that we could deal with it head on. But here's the reason why we don't use Facebook that way typically. Rarely do people go to Facebook to understand. Most of the time we go there to be understood. Facebook is a tool for being heard, not a tool for hearing. Listen to my point, hear my point, consider my point. And again, there's validity to that. But it often devolves into a place to simply ejaculate opinion. A place to lob our ideas out from the safety of our computers It's a technology that tacitly grants us permission to say things that we would not say if we were face-to-face. So that's why we've not used it that way. Now, as an aside, I would like to say to our community, if you have a problem with John, I would like you to consider it your commitment to a loving community to talk to John and to talk to him face-to-face. If you have a problem with Robin... I would like you to consider it your commitment to loving Christian community to talk to her face-to-face personally and not live ideas from afar. When I ask you to stay, I'm asking that when somebody on the other side of the divide evokes an afflictive emotion, we don't simply unload ideas or thoughts or opinions toward one another, but instead we engage a process of understanding and being understood. I'm asking us to do the work of digging into our own awareness so that we can tell our stories well and then extending the gift of listening so that we can hear the story of one another equally well. And by the way, if those aren't super familiar words with you, you might not have run into a long-standing practice of ours. You can go to our website under the resources tab, find conflict. There's a bunch of stuff there. You can learn everything that I just talked about it there's more than enough, especially there's a worksheet there. I would encourage you when you're having an afflictive emotion to have that worksheet handy and work through it so that you know you, so that you can begin to engage another. Now a big part of what made this election so painful was the surprise. Wow, I thought I knew our nation. Wow, I thought I knew the people that I go to church with. Wow, I thought we were on the same page. I'm reeling. How could I have been such a bad judge? So many are feeling blind, and many are feeling blindsided, which I think is testament to how little we have engaged this process of self-awareness and self-disclosure, of hearing and being heard. 
On the political right, we were blind to how severely Mr. Trump's words threatened people, people who are dear to us. Folks on the political right seemed capable of dismissing his words as hyperbole and were blinded to how caustic and threatening they were to people who have had a different experience and walked a different pathway in life. People that we love could not afford to be as dismissive of those words because they became a portent of things that could go very, very badly and could not be dismissed as hyperbole. For them, it was inconceivable that anyone would dismiss them. And sometimes we were blind to that. On the political left, we were blind to what an impotent tool shame really is. There was a lot of shaming that happened in this election cycle, and the thing is, social shame will modify people's behaviors, but it doesn't do a very good job of changing people's hearts. So the left shamed the right as immoral, as sexist, as racist, as deplorable, which shut down the right and shut up the right. You probably noticed on our Facebook page this week the conservative view was notably underrepresented because conservative people know what to do when shame is in the mix. You just shut up. At a national level, few people on the right even told pollsters what they were thinking. They changed their behavior on the outside, but they didn't change their hearts. And then a whole lot of those shamed people just quietly went out and voted which is about the best that our social dialogue does for us right now. And I think we can do better. And I think it's the job of religion to help us do better. And when I ask you to stay, I'm not just asking you to fill a seat on Sundays. I'm asking you to learn together over the next four years how to do a, job of, a better job of loving one another and how to do a better job loving the world. Now, my personality tends to get all wonky and uncomfortable when I don't feel powerful. <laughs> and this is an industrial strength version of that, because <laughs> I am not feeling powerful right now. There's nothing that I can do to make this be that kind of community. I can't organize it into happening. God knows I've tried. I can't teach it into happening. God knows I've tried. All I can do is stand and ask. So I am. I'm asking you to stay, and I'm asking you to learn how to do this Christian thing better. Now, I know that for the historically marginalized, that's hardly a fair ask, because you have already borne the lion's share of the struggle. And here I'm asking you to stay and to share the work equally, hearing and being heard, knowing and being known, and learning to love across the divide. And that's hardly fair, and I'm asking you to stay. And I'm asking the historically empowered to stay, knowing that you have felt ashamed and knowing that what our brains do in that kind of environment. We've got these default protective strategies. They're just wired into our neural circuits. We know how to dismiss viewpoints automatically. We know how to entrench and we know how to dig in. Confirmation bias, it's a real thing. And I'm asking you to stay. And I'm asking us to do better. Learning to hear and be heard learning to know and be known, 
learning to love and be loved. Part of what makes me feel powerless is I've done about everything I know how to do. I have preached the tools. I have organized the training. I have, right now, I've trained the community care team and I've trained the conflict resolution team and they're willing to help. But the thing is, it's got to be you. We've got some things. We've got help. We're not starting this thing from scratch. There's a whole lot of stuff posted on our website. We've got our meetup group. We've got our Facebook group. You can invite. You can learn. You can grow. I'll certainly help any way that I can. The community care team, the conflict team, the council, all do the same. But you have to decide what kind of community we will be. And the thing is, I know from experience that what I'm asking is excruciatingly difficult. Learning to hear and be heard, know and be known, love and be loved is difficult. And I've walked with enough people through the process to know that we will all fail miserably the first several times we try. Especially when emotion is involved, especially when entrenchment is involved, and when things go badly, as they so often do, we are sorely tempted to give up. We don't really consciously give up. We just find something else to focus on. There's a reason most folks go to sameness churches. Now, as I said, we're not starting from scratch. We've got tools. We know a lot. But even so, it will be difficult. And I'm asking you to stay and learn and fall down and get back up and then do it all again until we get it. I'm asking you to be patient with yourself. I'm asking you to be patient with one another. In one conversation I had this week, someone on the left said this, if we stop going to church together, who's going to teach us about the other side? Because I surely don't understand them. Who will help us get out of the silo? Who will help us move beyond the echo chamber? So we're facing, as a community, either a threat or an opportunity. What kind of spiritual community will we be? Will the conservatives run out the liberals or vice versa? Will we become just like the society around us, living in hermetically sealed, nice containers? Or will we become something countercultural, something like Jesus asked us to become? If we opt for the latter, we're going to need to develop some skills. We're going to need to learn how to do this better. Now, I plan on showing up here until I die. <laughs> I said to the council last week, I just don't know who I'm going to show up with. <laughs> so for those who decide to stay, Maybe we could approach the next year or so like this. First, we could be raw. That's probably going to be pretty easy. We could be angry. Probably got that part down. We could be hurt. We could grieve and we could feel our feelings for the amount of time that it takes to do that because we are human. But being human and knowing what we know, we know that the volatility will subside in time. And when it does we could start to sort through our feelings and we could to do the work to discern the stories that we're telling ourselves. We could ask ourselves what's under that story and under that and under that and under that as we do.
Again, the worksheet could help, the tools will help. There's a lot of training up there. But second, after that this year, maybe we could do this. Maybe we could look first for ways to engage one another. Maybe we could bring some intentionality to eating with the other. Maybe we could go out of our way to approach those times with a sense of purpose, with someone who thinks differently than we do. Maybe we could intentionally do the worksheet together, practice self-awareness and self-disclosure together. And then when we get it wrong, not if, but when we get it wrong, and when we have our afflictive emotions, maybe what we could do is come back and try again. And maybe we could get some help because there's plenty of help. Again, we're not starting from scratch. And then we could keep at it until we get it. Again, all help. The community care team will help. Conflict team will help. I'll teach a class if enough people want to go to it. I teach this thing all the time. I'm getting a whole lot better. If you did this two years ago, I am so much better at teaching it than I was two years ago. But third, if we do that, we could be informed by one another's stories. We could be informed by one another's experiences. And we could pick up a bigger perspective because we've been informed by one another's stories and one another's experienced. And then we could begin to look for points of action. And on this point, maybe you don't even have to wait. What are practical ways that we as a community could work together to bring unity to division? What are practical ways that we together as a community could empower and to serve the world around us? What are practical ways that we could look to stand with the disenfranchised and to heal the breach in our nation? Practical ways that we could, if we could stand in solidarity with one another, given that we have the other in our own community, maybe we could stand in solidarity with a society that has the other in a society. And maybe we could begin to engage a process for our community that would fill out that fourth quadrant in our circle, the service quadrant. Maybe we could serve the world together because we've been informed by a bigger story than goes on in this polemical partisan process that happens out there. Somebody told me about a local workshop on race relations in March. That might be a good place to start learning one another's stories, finding one another's causes, standing with and working with one another. The degree to which we learn to more authentically love one another will be the degree to which we will be empowered to bring effective healing across barriers in our own society. That's the way this Christian thing was designed to work. I remember early on hearing the simple uh, saying, we gather to become stronger. We scatter to change the world. Maybe we could do that. After I heard the news from the election, it was like 5 o'clock in the morning when I heard it, I had a pit in my stomach for several days. You may, have, you may have seen me post this meme on Facebook. I was staying with Jack, the guy who came as our consultant last year when we were uh, um, being removed from our building and trying to find our way forward. And so as I was staying there, he posted it on his Facebook group, so I just shared it uh, onto mine. And about that same day, the time that he posted it and I reposted it, we were driving to town. He lives near London, right out on the outskirts of London. 
And I was doing the tourist thing. I was gawking at these really old buildings and I was seeing uh, what was going on. And somewhere along the way, I realized that some of these buildings had been bombed during the Blitz. That's something I studied in history. And here it was looking right in front of me. And a thought came to me. We could have been born into a total war generation. Many have. And in that thought, I begin to feel a sense of solidarity with those who have gone before us that have faced troubles even stiffer than our own. And somehow in that thought, I stumbled on a peaceful place inside of myself. I don't know what's going to happen in the next four years. I don't know what will be required of us. I don't know what we will have to stand up to, and I don't know what we will have to stand up for. But something I often say has settled into my heart. Communities of Christians have lost their way before, but we always find it again. And the Spirit of God in those generations is no different from the Spirit of God within us. And that peaceful place has been expanding inside of me, that whatever is required of us in the days before us, we will find our way. And I really do hope that you'll stay. So Holy Spirit, I hold our community before the presence and power of the divine. And I pray that our response to this election and our response to the divisions in our society and the divisions in our own community and the divisions in our own hearts, I pray that our response will be when we look back on this moment in the future, I pray that our response will be among our finest hours. I pray that would be so in our hearts and in our community, would be so through us to the society around us, to the world around us. In Jesus' name, amen.